You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing good, Dave. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah, good to talk to you. It, it's been quite a while. I always, it blows my mind on some of this because it was episode 63 when we did our last episode and we're above like, I think 530 now. So wow. we're, yeah, we're running and we're running and rolling over here. So it's been a long time. I want to catch up with you on everything. Everybody, I think everybody knows you out there with Orvis um, and you're always doing some great things in education and travel, but um, give us a little update. So since then, that was a, a few years ago. What's been new? Anything new with you or Orvis out there? Well, yeah, I mean, Orvis has always got cool new products, and luckily my fishing buddies are also the product developers, so I get to right. see pretty early on and play with them. Um, yeah, there's some new stuff coming, but, I, you know, they'd shoot me if I told you, so I can't yeah. really tell you. But, you know, the product developers are always pushing the envelope and always trying to improve things, and um, I think they've done a really good job. It's probably the best product development team we've ever had at by far that we've ever had at Orvis. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. And I've heard, I mean, obviously just because you're Orvis, we hear a lot of good things out there. And one of the things I heard from somebody, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying, they're talking about waiters, I think. And they said how great the warranty was on Orvis. They said that basically they've got these waiters and, you know, if you have an issue, you know, Orvis will take care of you. And it's kind of like that almost for life. Like talk about that a little bit. Is that like, if you get a pair of waiters, it's pretty much warrantied for life. Is that how it works? No, that's not true. And no. I don't I think anybody that anybody that, that says that or tries to do that is being a little being a little foolish because waiters wear out, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, if you have a pair of waiters for four or five years, um customer service will make you happy and they, they might give you a discount on a new pair of waiters or we have a repair service oh, nice. uh, that people can use. Uh, that do a really good professional job of repairing them, but it's they're not guaranteed for life. I mean, no. If they leak in a year or two, yeah, and it's not barbed wire, yeah, we'll make good on it, and we want to keep our customers happy, but um, they're not warranted for life. Okay, you can good. Do that. So they're off, they're off of that. I thought that one when they were telling me, I was, I was thinking like, wow, that is pretty extreme. I, yeah, I, yeah, no, no, and I don't think any waiter manufacturer will do that for you. They're, you know. Okay. Well, I love the warranty because we recently had a big guest on the podcast um, who I can say now is coming up, Yvonne Chouinard. And he talked about the, um, uh, you know, just Patagonia and they're kind of how they fix things, right? I think, do you feel yeah. like Orvis, I know you guys do a lot of great stuff with the, you know, in the conservation. Is that kind of a similar thing that you do about trying to repair things? So we're trying to reduce the number of, of, of products out there? Yeah, because there isn't much you can do with a you know leaky pair of waders other than maybe make a cut off the boots and make a pair of rain pants out of them or something. But yeah, we yeah. try to you know if if it's just a you know a, a seam leak after four or five years that can be fixed. I just uh, produced a video on how to repair waders yourself because it's, oh. it's not, not that hard and I find it kind of fun. Yeah, and satisfying. Um, you know, with a tube of aqua seal and a flashlight and maybe a shop vac, you can find leaks and repair them almost in almost anything. So, mm. yeah, I love that. Well, I think we we're gonna hold. Uh, maybe we'll hold that tip off till a little bit towards the end um, because today <laughs> you got you got a vast knowledge. I think the education is amazing because we're always trying to think. You know, we've got a small little education center and, and travel program and stuff like that, but nothing like Orvis and. You know, you guys, I think, are kind of leading out there with everything you have going. So I want to touch on that today. And part of that is, 
you know, I think you're going to be, well, I know you're going to be at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, right? First of all, that, tell me this, are you a kind of a wine drinker or a beer drinker or how did Bo coax you into attending the festival? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Bo's an old friend yeah, and um, I'm very fond of Bo and he's been really good to me. Um, You know, it's a great show. It's very family oriented. The crowd there is wonderful and welcoming. And, you know, Bo is, Bo is a pretty cool guy. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember the first year I went, he sent my wife flowers to thank her for letting me go. For oh, the wow. Week. And that's a really thoughtful, that's the kind of person Bo is, you know, really thoughtful. Cool. So, so I, I like the show. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I think Bo, when we had him on the podcast, I was thinking about this, but I think anybody that cries on your podcast right away for me gets a like next level. And he, he described the book he was writing at the time and, you know, his connection to some of the wounded veterans and things like that. Right. I think he has got a lot of passion. Yep. And I plan on having him on the podcast for, uh, for that. Oh, nice. Uh, book and then talk, I want to talk to him about, uh, access issues because he's, dug into the public versus private state law, uh, riparian zone, um, issue deeper than anyone. And he's got a broad knowledge and I really want to talk to him about that. Right. Gosh, there's so many topics. I love, I love talking to you because you're bringing up all these great topics and that's one we want to tee up to. It isn't interesting. (laughs) Don't you try to beat me to it. No, I'm not. I won't. I won't. You got it. I'll I'll give you it first. So, well, well, let's, uh, and I also want to touch base on the podcast because obviously you've got the, you know, the largest podcast out there, this podcast that's really great, but let's jump into some topics from the festival that you're heading to. And I, and I want to tee this up just to, one of the topic headlines is, you know, how would we take, uh, I think it's like trout to the next level. And I think that's something that's always interesting. We just got back from a trip, Euro nymph fishing. Uh-huh, and yeah. it was one of those things where we had a, an expert guide, you know, we had Pete Erickson who was helping guide us. Oh yeah. Pete's and, great. Yeah. And it was really amazing. And so that's one way to take to the next level. Right. But yeah, it's not easy when you're just out there reading, listening, all that. What, what's, can you break that down a little bit? Maybe talk about that. If somebody comes in, they're like, they've been trout fishing for many years, but maybe they're ready to like, I don't know, what is the next level from that person? Yeah, it re- really depends on what you've concentrated on. But um, you touched on one thing that, that I recommend for people. And this is, this is someone who's, you know, maybe just had a few fly casting lessons or maybe somebody that's been doing it for years. I mean, we can all learn, right? It's it, yeah. We wouldn't do this if we didn't learn something new every time we went out. And so I touch on, I touch on about twelve things that I recommend. I call it my twelve-step program. Mm, nice. <laughs> I touch on, I touch on twelve things, and I won't, I won't go through all of them. But sure. One of them is, is to be a generalist. You know, you you talk to people all the time that that only dry fly fish or only Euro nymph mm. or only streamer fish for big fish. And, you know, A, they're, they're missing a lot of fun, but B, if you get outside of your comfort zone and try something else, like, you know, trout spay, you're going to learn stuff. Even if you don't like it, you're mm-hmm. going to learn stuff that when you go back to your preferred method, um, you're going to learn stuff that can benefit you uh, greatly. Nice. That, for instance, that. here's a for instance. Yeah. Um, I like fishing dry dropper. I don't, I'm not very good at Euro nymphing and I don't especially care for it, although I do it and I'm trying to get better at it because it's so effective. Yeah. But I've learned a lot from Euro nymphing that I've applied to my dry dropper fishing, you know, using a longer, thinner tippet, um, you know, keeping the rod high during a dry dropper, I've really, I've really changed the way I approach dry dropper fishing from what I've learned in Euro nymphing. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. So, and there is a lot of overlap and then even like dry dropper versus, uh, you know, what, like indicator, right? I mean, is that something, do you find yourself fishing more dry droppers than indicators out there? Yeah. I've really, you know, unless I'm fishing really deep, heavy water, early spring, I don't want to miss that strike on, you know, you, you, too many times I've had fish take a strike indicator and, you know, a good high floating chubby Chernobyl is so much more effective than a plastic bobber, I think. And, um, you know, there's uh, lots of times there's a chance and fish might come up and take that big dry. So, um, 
my indicators haven't been used much in the past couple of years, except very early in the season. Squala fly fishing combining advanced materials with fishing-focused purpose-built design. Squala waders, jackets, shirts, pants, and insulation are made for us. To help wet fly swing listeners right now, Squala is offering a 10% discount on your next order. Just visit squalafishing.com and use the coupon code WETFLYSWING10 at checkout. That's Squala, S-K-W-A-L-A. Gear for us, the serious angler. Good. I think that's a good first step, you know, being a generalist, not restricting yourself just to, you know, whatever that is, uh, that category is. Um, what else should we be thinking about? And let's paint the picture of somebody. Let's just take somebody like myself. I've been fishing for many years. I'm definitely not an expert, not a guru at really anything. I'm kind of, I am kind of a generalist, but you know, how would I, I feel like my casting's okay. Although like my dad casts a lot better than me. I feel like I have work to do there. What else do we need to think about to take it to the next level? Well, casting is essential. And, you know, the better you cast, um, the better your form, the better your all your casts are going to be. So, you know, concentrating on that standard overhead cast, unless you're your own nympher and then you don't have to worry. Right. <laughs> but, you know, concentrating on that standard overhead cast is going to make your double haul better. And I am so surprised at the people that I meet who don't know how to do a reach cast. Oh, um, yeah. You know, as, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't know how to do a reach cast, you're not in the game for trout fishing and a lot of other fishing too. And I'm just blown away. I was hosting a trip in Idaho um, about a month ago, and there was a, I was fishing with a woman, one of the guests one day. And she was really good. She was, you know, she could cast, and she had tons of energy and really fishy, but she didn't know how to do a reach cast. And the guide and I were, you know, worked her through uh, 10 minutes or so of doing a reach cast and she got it. And, but she had never, never tried to do it before. And I just, I just can't imagine mm. anyone who um, trout fishes not knowing how to do reach cast. Yeah. And, and I want to touch on the reach cast. Um, but that trip, I remember that because actually I think we were there at the same time because when we went there, one of our, we kind of hosted a trip there as well. And somebody was like, hey, Tom Rosenbauer is here somewhere. Like, were you guys on the, um, was this the Snake River? Yeah, we were on the South Fork and Henry Fork. Oh, you were? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we fished the same water. So let's hear the trip. I think it was the same week or close by. How did you guys do? We did okay. You know, I yeah. mean, the fishing's always good there. Um, last year, we had 70 degrees and sunny every day on the same week. And I was kind of bummed. Yeah, too much <laughs> I mean, the, the weather was beautiful, but I was hoping for some streamer fishing and some bluing olives. And of course right. we didn't see much. So we had some nice, cold, miserable, rainy days and uh, the streamer fishing was better, caught some big brown trout. And then we had yeah. nice days too. So yeah, it's, I mean, those rivers are, are just so great that there's always something there's always something did you guys find the henry's fork or the south fork was the more uh productive uh i found the south fork was more productive we've uh, i fished the ranch a bit and that was quite frustrating i fished the ranch on my own i don't like taking guests there because oh, it's, sure. it's so difficult but the lower henry's fork was good uh-huh. um but it wasn't it wasn't lights out and the south we had a couple of really good days on the south fork mm, nice and you guys were floating yeah yeah yeah, it's a cool. I actually, it was fun for me because I took, um, I'm a big drift boat nut and I hadn't floated in a, uh, a road, a, a hide, you know, any cl- fiberglass. So I rode a hide the whole trip and it was so uh-huh. much fun because, you know, they, those, those boats are so designed for that fishing out of the boat. And I, I, I run like a big coffler, like more of a, a gear boat sort of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it was a lot of fun for me, just even without even fishing much, you know what I mean? Just kind of rowing along the trip. Um, and did you guys have, um, what, what, uh, well, I guess you have your own program, right? You have your own, uh, Orvis endorsed lodges down there, right? Yeah, I've been uh, Three Rivers Lodge in um, it's outside of Ashton is one of my it's the oldest Orvis endorsed lodge and it's had the same owners since like the turn of the 20th century. So it's well established. It's a very much a family run organization. The guides have all been there for years and the food is just, they've had the same chef for 40 years. So, (laughs) so it's, you know, it's, it's like home for me. It's a a pretty special place. So I I host a trip there every fall. That's amazing. When you guys do those host trips, I know it's cool because you've got these, we've talked about, we've had a few, I mean, people, you know, 
on the podcast, who was, uh, well, Lucas from AFTA recently, we were talking about, you know, he, I think he won an award or one of those the years, but because you, you guys do the Orvis um, kind of right guide of the year, I think lodge of the year sort of stuff. Right. And, yep. and yep. it was interesting because people were talking about, you know, how they did it, how they got up to that level. Cause that's obviously makes a big impact on their business. And so it's really cool. Is that program, has that been going along, uh, along for a long time? Yeah. 30 some years, a long time. Gotcha. Yeah. Quite a long time. So yeah. Well, in the Three Rivers Lodge, definitely there's so many. We've been doing a little, a number of episodes from that area prior to our trip out there. So I've talked to a few of them and I know, um, yeah, Oliver White's got a lodge out there now. So it seems like it's kind of one of those, where are the meccas? Let's just take it there for a second. Like you got, that seems like one, when you think of places to go in the U.S., because there's not a lot of places you can do the lodge thing. Is it mostly a Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, or is there stuff around the country? No, areas? there's stuff around the country. There's a really, really great lodge on the, on the Delaware uh, mm. here in the east. And there's a, you know, they're they're all around the country, um, okay. but they are concentrated in the American West just because there's so much variety and, you know, so much more land and public land. So, um I would imagine probably two thirds of the endorsed lodges are in the American West. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Well, let's go back to that, that reach cast because we've talked about that before, but I want to hear from you and it's hard to describe on a podcast, but what is that reach cast and when would you really want to use that? Well, the thing that I, I don't try to teach people in my presentation, I tell them to go to YouTube. Oh, there you go. Watch Pete Kutzer do it. Oh yeah. Basically, basically you're making a mend in the air before your line hits the water instead of waiting until your line hits the water and then, you know, making a lot of commotion, uh, mend often moves your fly or your indicator or whatever, Um, you know, set it up beforehand, do that mend in the air beforehand, basically an aerial mend. And exactly where you reach that rod is, you know, a matter of practice and muscle memory. So people need to practice it just like anything else. Um, but watching a video on someone like Pete uh, on the Orvis Learning Center, showing how to do it and actually where to put the reach, you can put it closer to your fly, you can put it closer to you, depending on where the conflicting currents are, um, you know, it takes yep. a little practice, but um, it's yep. not it's not super difficult. It, no. It, it's not really a separate cast. It's just a variation of a good overhead cast. Yeah, over and and then there's also the if you do that cast and then do the um, like the S. What's that? Is that also called a reach? You know, where you kind of throw a couple S curves and put slack in it as it drops. No, that's called a, a slack line cast. And I guess the reach cast is one slack line cast. You know, the pile cast or parachute cast or other ones um, that are that are good to know. But depend, it's all situational. You have to look at you have to stand there and yep. look at what the current's doing between you. And where you think the fish are, and then you decide which one to use. Yeah, gotcha. Like for example, if you were on, you know, fishing, you're on river left, rivers flowing from right to left, and you know, you're making this cast maybe kind of quartering out, and there's some current that's pulling your line kind of in a downstream, right? Dragging your fly. You can make a make the cast and then reach to the right, and that would put that reach, that mend in it as it drops, and then you don't yeah. have to mend upstream. Right. And you may have to mend later on in the cast, but hopefully you don't. Hopefully you set it up so that you get a good drift without disturbing the water so much. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, so casting is next, like you said, next level. That would be huge. If you're just a average or maybe struggling at your casting, to get that to a better level, that's a huge part of it. Yep. And, um, you know, learning, learning to read the water better. I mean, <clears throat> in a lot of rivers, 90% of the water doesn't hold adult trout. Mm. And if you don't know, you know, if there's nothing rising, you, you don't, if you don't know where to put your fly, you could be spending a very unproductive day with your fly not being shown to any trout. Right. Um, and so I go into, I go into reading the water quite a bit, talking about seams and rocks and currents and turbulence, you know, but I, I kind of tell people there's three things you need to look for. Uh, reading the water. One is water that's two to four feet deep hmm. and uh, velocity about one foot per second, which is, you know, kind of your your standard uh, steelhead mm-hmm. uh, velocity. Try, try to figure out what one foot per second is. Pretty easy to estimate it. And then uniform flow. 
Mm. So not a lot of turbulence, um, not a lot of bubbles, not a lot of swirls, but more uniform kind of choppy flow. And if you can find that stuff, you're going to find trout. Right, right. And and not to say you can't find trout in a deep slack pool sort of thing, but you're saying the most most of the fish are in that kind of uniform flow. When they're feeding. Oh, you know, they feeding. might be in a deep slack slow or, or six feet down in a pool because they're spooked or sleeping or whatever they do when they're not eating, but they really prefer to feed in that kind of water. And that's what we're, we're trying to do is feed them, right? <laughs> so yeah. we got to put the fly where they're eating. Gotcha. Okay, good, good. So that's it. So that's a good distinction where they're feeding. And uh, we're going to be heading out, uh, I think next year doing a trip. I'm not a big, I love brook trout. We've got some out here as well, but I haven't done a lot of brook trout fishing. We're planning on heading out with uh, kind of the Mossy Creek uh, crew. And I, I, I know you know those guys, I think, yeah. in the crew. Talk about that a little bit. If we're thinking brook trout and we're yeah. talking about reading the water, I've never been up to some of these waters. I think we're going into the Shenandoah. Maybe right. describe that a little bit. What what could I expect on that? Is reading water going to be key to catching fish there? I know brook trout maybe are easier to catch than other species, but what's your take? Yeah, it is. Of course, if you're going with the Trow brothers, they're going to know right where the fish are. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you're, you know, let's say you're on your own. Um, yeah, brook, brook trout are actually supremely well adapted to headwater streams. And we think of them as being really sensitive, uh, but they can out, actually outcompete rainbows and browns when you get into these very sterile, cold, little more acidic waters. Um, they're better adapted to, to living in that kind of situation. And, you know, in, in a small stream, of course, depth is always a limiting factor. You have to look for, you have to look for water that's what I, what I tell people is to look for places where the rocks on the bottom start to get blurry. Hmm. Um, that seems to, that's, and it's probably because predators can't see them when they're that deep, right? Oh, and the water doesn't have to be that deep. But if the rocks on the bottom are blurry, you probably got enough depth. And then brook trout are going to tend to be very close adjacent to the main current flow because these streams do not have a lot of food and a lot of hatches. And when the fish are feeding, they're going to need to be close to that main flow. So, you know, you get off to the sides and the back and the slack water, nah, not so much. Um, you can, you know, you, of course you will cut, you can catch them there and will catch yep. them there. But, you know, if you're, if you're playing the odds, you want to look for that depth, and then you want to look for areas just off the side of the main flow, not where there's a lot of bubbles and turbulence, but, you know, seams on yeah. the edge of fast water. And, and brook trout are, are well adapted to, you know, eating a beetle now and an ant an hour later um, and maybe going for a day without food. They're really good at maximizing and that's why that's why they're so aggressive because they don't know where their next meal is coming from in this environment. Uh, fly pattern isn't usually that important. Um, it, you got to have something that looks buggy and put it over their head, and they'll probably eat it. Wow, that's awesome! So, so basic. And is the foam is home, right? Is that is that applied to brook trout? Yeah, foam, but not the frothy foam. Uh, you know, it, for trout in general, foam is home because that shows you where the main current thread is, right? That's where the food is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, foam as it goes down through a slow pool, especially, um, the fish are going to be pegged to that foam line. Yeah. By foam, people don't mean the, the turbulent, bubbly stuff, but just bubbles on the surface as opposed to bubbles throughout the water column because the fish can't see their food if they're in, you know, submerged bubbles. Right. Okay. And they actually can't hold their position very well because if you get too much air in the water, although it's highly oxygenated, the fish can't hold their position because it's not dense enough to hold them in place. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's a, yeah, it's a constant struggle for, I mean, really any trout, but is brook trout fishing, talking about fishing up there in the, say the Shenandoah, is it a lot different than, say, fishing rainbows lower down in that system? Say, I'm not sure even the other rivers. I guess it's in the Pot yeah. Potomac, but yeah. No, not really. Yeah. Not really. The trout are trout. And, you know, with brook trout, you sometimes have to you have to cover a lot of ground because, you know, you could have 50 yards of, of a creek that's unproductive, totally unproductive because there's just not the habitat. So typically in, in brook trout fishing, in these headwater streams, which is the only place they can survive because the water's cold enough, 
you got to move a lot. Mm. You just keep moving. And if a fish is there and um, you make a couple casts, fish is either going to eat your fly or be spooked. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not going to sit there and, and uh, eyeball it like a brown trout in the Henry's Fork. Yeah. or rainbow in the Henry's Fork. They're either going to eat or they're going to be scared. That's right. Yeah. And if you take it to the Henry's Fork where you're at, you're on the famous, because we floated the lower section down there and, and had a pretty good day. But you were, what was that section you were like up there? Like talk about that fishing versus say brook trout fishing, totally different. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like a whole nother world. There, I'm talking about the railroad ranch yeah. on the Henry's Fork and it's smooth water. There's tons of bugs. The fish see a lot of angling pressure. And um, they feed when they feel like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and because they got food all the time. And, you know, they're spooky because the water's clear and it's flat, mostly flat. And um, you got you to gotta be on your A game there. And they are, those fish are selective about fly pattern. You know, it's, mm. there aren't many, I don't think there's many trout rivers in this country where fish are really that selective to a particular insect and a particular stage of the insect. Right. But the Henry's work is one of them for sure. Yeah, it is. God, this is great. Yeah. It seems like, you know, it's another one of those for me. I haven't fished that reach. And how does it feel for you? Because we talked about this last time when you were on just about places to go. And, you know, none of us are as well-traveled as some of these guys out there like Jeff Courier and people like that. But are you still on a track? Like how do you, when you look at your next trips, you know, do you have kind of a list of things you're like, okay, I want to get these. It sounds like down South America and all that is a big one for you. But what are your thoughts there? Has that changed? Has that evolved in the last few years? Yeah, it kind of has as I as I get older. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of um I still like to explore and I still like to see new things and learn new things. But I kind of gravitate more towards familiar places. I'm not a really um philosophical angler. I don't uh focus on the touchy-feely stuff even though I do feel it and it's a spiritual experience for me. I don't I don't think about it that much. And um, so I like to go where I know I can catch fish. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not one of these people that says, oh, I don't care if I don't catch any fish. Um, I just like to be out there waiting in the water. Well, I like to catch at least one fish. Yeah. Every day. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you're, my guess is you haven't done a lot of steelhead fishing lately, given the. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, you know, I, I love steelhead fishing when I'm in the moment, but um yeah, I like, you know, steelhead, Atlantic salmon. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, I don't want to go someplace where I might spend a week and not catch a fish. Yeah, yeah. So I'll do it. I'll do it. But, um, and I love it when I'm there. But if I'm thinking about someplace I want to go, I'd rather go trout fishing or bone fishing um, where things are a little more predictable. Yeah. And if you do things right, you can catch a fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bonefish, not and not permit or or some other right the the, the yeah. real tough ones, musky. I mean, it feels to me, and this is again, I haven't always been interested in salt as much, but it just uh-huh. feels almost overwhelming with all the options now. Um, you know, that seems weird to say because I know I'm not going to be able to go go everywhere. But what is your thought there? Does it feel overwhelming to you? All these places, all these great, you know, fishing opportunities. It does. You know, there's so many, Dave, there's so many places that I haven't been to that I want to go to. And, um, you know, I, I've never fished the Chutes. Yep. I've never fished the Osable in Michigan. I've never been to New Zealand. I've never been to Slovenia. Um, there's just yeah. so many, so many places. And what's sort of frustrating is that we have so much great fishing in North America yep. that, um, you know, I've never been to the Driftless region of Wisconsin, and I really want to go there. So mm-hmm. people shouldn't feel insecure or, you know, th- that they've missed out because they haven't been to these places. Um, you just have to, you know, go where you can, where you can afford to go and where you have the time to go. And yeah, you may never, you, you won't ever see all these wonderful places. Yeah, no, I think that's a great take is that and we've had people say that before, you know, I can't remember, we had a guest on that I was asking them about places to go and, and she was saying that, hey, you know, we got these amazing places in North America, you know, j- just because you're not going to the Seychelles doesn't mean yeah. you're a crappy fisherman, right? We've got tons right. of good stuff yeah. here, right, in this country and yeah. including salt, like all the striper, fi- like all sorts of good salt fishing. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of uh, striped bass fishing here in New England 
and um, I just love it. And, it, you know, I can drive to it. doesn't cost me a lot of money. I have friends with houses there or that rent houses. And, um, you know, it's world class. It's um, crystal clear water, fisher in two or three feet of water. It's all sight fishing or it can be all sight fishing. And they fish can be, you know, up in the high 30 inches to 40 some inches. Catching those on a, on a crab fly in shallow water is pretty cool. Amazing. And that's within reach of, you know, so many people. Yeah. Easily within reach of so many people. We've got Daniel on today from Northern Rockies Adventures. He's here to share some of the Northern BC, some fishing tips today. How are you doing, Daniel? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Today I'd like to talk about why I love to fish for Arctic grayling. Nice. Yes. An Arctic grayling are a species that I love catching. It's been a while. Up in Alaska was the last time I was out for them. They're this amazing, beautiful, colorful fish. So tell us why you love uh, grayling. Yeah, I just can't stop fishing for them. They're they're always so keen to take a fly. Um, and they put on one heck of a fight for their size. They're just incredibly feisty. Um, I kind of call them our little northern uh, sailfish. Um, just based off of the beautiful dorsal fin that they have. They're just an excellent fly fishing uh, species. They slurp dries. Uh, they'll go for nymphs. Uh, even in the choppiest rivers, you'll you'll find them. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're going to be uh, following up with you, and we've got an episode with you coming up here uh, December 20th, uh, 2023. The Founders episode will be episode 540, so if anybody's listening in the future, they can check that out and get the full story. But we're going to be doing some more of these little short snippet uh, uh, intros as well. So uh, until we talk to you again, Daniel, thanks again. Thank you. Well, looking forward to it. Well, this is good. So we started this talking about uh, kind of taking, you know, the fly fishing kind of to the next level. We've mentioned a few big things, right? You talk, We've talked casting, reading water, kind of those types of things. What else would you add to this list? So again, take it back to me. Like, I want to like get to that next level where I am kind of, uh, you know, better than I am. What would you tell me? Well, this is more for uh, someone who hasn't been fishing that long, but I tell people not to sweat the entomology. People worry that they have to know the, the genus and the species of a, of a mayfly to catch trout. And, of course, you and I know that's yep. ridiculous. Um, if you want to get into entomology, seriously, that's fine. It might help your fishing a little bit. But I tell people, just know the, the basic orders of insects. So be able to tell a midge from a mayfly, from a caddisfly, from a stonefly. Mm-hmm. Those four at all life stages, be able to tell what the nymph looks like and then Spend a lot more time observing the behavior of the insects and the behavior of the fish. You don't need to know that much about those those bugs. Um, watch what they do and watch how the fish react to them. Um, you know, the, the, the best anglers are the ones that are most observant. Mm-hmm. And they see something on one river and then they apply it to the next river. Um, so I tell people, you know, don't sweat entomology. It's scared more people away from uh, fly fishing more than uh, it's scared more. Really? More than more than casting? More than the the challenge of casting that people think? It's scared more people away from fly fishing than anything except the blood knot. Oh, the blood is the blood knot. That's the funny thing because the blood knot is the one I learned first, but it is for some reason. Yeah. The surgeon's knot is way easier. Yeah, yeah, but a good blood knot is is about the best yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. What why is that? Why why do you like the blood knot? I think it's stronger. I think it's stronger, it's cleaner. Um Yep. And, you know, surgeon's knot's great and it's quick, but if you don't tie a surgeon if you don't tighten a surgeon's knot properly, it's going to be worthless. So, oh. um it's easy to tie, but it's easy to screw it up. Yeah. And a blood knot, once you get it tied, um, you know, once you get poke both of those ends through and you tighten it, um, yeah. you're done. It, it, it's done. It's good. Do you find that on that blood knot, you can clip the tags as tight as you want, or do you always leave a tiny little tag end? Absolutely. When when knots uh, break, that extra tag is not going to offer you any more insurance. And I see people leaving yep. longer tags because they think they're getting a little extra insurance not true. And also, um, the tags catch, you know, particularly if you're fishing like a dry and three nymphs or two nymphs. Um, (laughs) that's another point of contact. Yeah. And, um, it's it's easy to get tangled. So yeah, clip them just as short as you can. If the, you know, if you got five turns in your blood knot and you've tightened it properly, always test knots. It's one of the 
other things that I um, yeah. tell people in this because you can tie a perfect looking knot that's no good. And I don't know why, but, you know, always test your knots, always test your knots. Test knot. And how do you test not just grab it and pull as hard just as you Just grab can. it and pull it as, you know, to the point where you think it, it should hold. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but you know, after, after you get used to it a while, you can, you can tell. Yeah. You can tell exactly. Nice. So, yeah. so I love this and we're, and so entomology again, it's, um, you know, it's one of those things of fly fishing. I think why fly fishing is great because it is another topic in fly fishing where you can take it as far as you want and just know, right. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. That's what makes yeah. fly fishing awesome. Have you taken entomology, uh, like to the next level or do you kind of stick to just, you know, the basics? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I minored in aquatic entomology in college. Oh, wow. And so I knew the bugs pretty well. And there were times when I used to, I had to know what mayfly this was that was hatching. And I don't I do not do it much anymore. A, you know, a PMD is a PMD. And it's cream. It's size 16. Mm. That's all I need to know. Yeah. I don't, I don't bother much with uh, worrying what species or even what genus it is. Right. And how do you do that? If you're on a stream, you talked about the behavior of the bug. How would you determine the behavior? You got all these bugs going around. First, do you, do you catch them with a net or do you just kind of watch the bugs, see how the fish are eating? How do you monitor that? Well, I watch I watch the bugs. Sometimes I'll catch them with the net just to see what, you know, sometimes things are in the surface film that you can't see very well mm-hmm. uh, unless you get in same current lane as the fish. So I will occasionally you know, put a net in the water, a little net. Actually, one of the best things to do is to buy a five-gallon paint strainer net from Home Depot or hardware store. And uh, they have an elastic uh, thing on. You can slide it over your net and it makes the best uh, mm. insect net there oh, nice. is. Yeah, heard of that costs one. about five bucks for two of them. Oh, perfect. Um, and um, I'll do that occasionally, but most of the time I'll just look at the water. You know, people really need to learn that Fish can't eat the bugs unless they're on the water. And people will see clouds and clouds of caddisflies in the air. And those caddisflies often are just migrating. Uh, they can live for they can live for a month or so out of the water, unlike mayflies. So people see a big these they see the air full of caddis and they think, oh boy, I'm in the middle of a caddis hatch. Yeah. Um, if you look at the water. There may be no caddis on the water. There might be some mayfly spinners, and the trout that are rising are not eating those caddis flies because they're never getting on the water. Right. Um, so, you know, being observant as to what is on the water and what the flies are doing, you know, if they're hatching, um, if they're actually hatching, um, sometimes an emerger works better, or sometimes even a little twitch because the, the flies are pretty active. If mm. they're spinners, if they're spent, you have to avoid drag at all costs because those flies, those bugs are not moving at all. They're half dead. Hmm. Um, so just, you know, being observant yeah. as to what stage. And you don't need to know what genus and species that mayfly is. you got it right in front of you. It's, you know, yeah. it's got a rusty body and clear wings and it's size 16. That's what you need to know. Yeah, that's it. And I think I always go, whenever we get in these conversations, I always highlight the Rick Hayfley. We've had him on. He's a he is an entomologist, yeah. and I know I think he's yeah. been on your podcast. So I'll put a link to the show notes to that episode. But I think he talked about that one thing that he said too on size. He was like, "Hey, things are always smaller. You know, always go a little bit smaller than you think on these, at least with your hooks." Um, That's true. Yeah. That's true because they they look bigger in the air and on the water. And um, yeah, well, you know, if you finally capture one, you put it on your finger, you realize, "Oh my God, that thing is a lot smaller than I thought." Yeah, yeah, that's it. Nice. So. So this is entomology, behavior, fish behavior, and really it comes down to, like you said, being observant, maybe just sitting down on the bank and before you fish, watch what's going on, what's hatching. Maybe there's a couple of caddis yeah. that are dipping, laying eggs. Now, if that's happening, if, if you see a few caddis kind of dipping the, into the, the water, does that feel like you're ready to maybe try a caddis or do you need to see a bunch of caddis doing that? Um, depends, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, you know. If the cats are dipping on the water and the fish aren't rising, I probably won't fish a caddis fly. If they're dipping on the water, they're generally going to, a lot of them actually go underwater to lay their eggs. So they're oh, going to be, wow. they're going to be in the water, under the water. So yeah. Um, but maybe a wet fly m- might work better. Yeah. Wet fly just under the surface, man. 
See, and that's where you start to get into this. That's where it's you could just start going right and deeper and deeper, and then say like, okay, a cat, because yeah. cats seem to be the one that. I don't know. It seems to be the the bug that's maybe a little not as much. It's not as talked about. Do, do you find it seems like all the mayfly hatches are so prevalent? The stoneflies, um, I don't know, midges. What, what's your take? Do you fish caddis a lot, or do you fish midges all equally? I fish caddis pupa a lot because I think the fish like that stage. And when I'm fishing subsurface, if there's any caddis flies around at all, I will. You know, if I'm nymph fishing, I'll I'll put some sort of thing that looks like a caddis pupa on. The adults, unless I actually see fish eating the adults on the surface, I'll generally stick with an emerger or, or a deep pupa or something. Um, you know, and I've seen a lot of situations where, and this isn't in all rivers, but in a lot of rivers, um, if there's both caddis and mayflies on the water, fish tend to, tend to uh, gravitate toward the mayflies. Mm. I think caddis hatch very quickly. Um, they skitter around a lot. Fish don't like their food moving, <laughs> you know, right. they don't like to have to chase a hamburger around <laughs> the room to, uh, to bite it. Yeah. And mayflies are generally a lot more sedate. So, um, but then, then again, you'll, you'll have people that say, oh, caddisflies are the most important trout stream insect because they fish on rivers where caddisflies are more abundant or, um, you know, the particular species that they're of caddis that's hatching rides the water longer or comes back to the water and lays their eggs. So, um, you know, you can't take that as gospel, but uh, generally, generally mayflies seem to be more important. And then there's rivers where midges are more important, particularly, you know, a lot of tailwaters where um, midges are more abundant because particularly below dams, the oxygen level's a little bit lower uh, right below a, a dam. And, Mayflies and caddisflies don't do as well, but midges are, you know, adapted to living in really extreme environments. In fact, that's often a sign of overly polluted waters where you see lots of midges and nothing else. Oh, right. Right, right. Yeah. And and midges are another one of those species. I mean, they're tiny. Um, They feel like, for me at least, they feel like they're kind of a challenging insect. Do you find um, it shouldn't be that much more difficult than fish and mayflies? Oh, I love, I love a good midge hatch. Um, again, I'll, I'll, I'll usually fish a pupa or an emerger, um, instead of an adult, but boy, you know, fish, when fish get on midges and really get on them, it can be really cool fishing. Mm. And, you know, yeah, you got to go small and none of us like to go small. And I never have enough, I never have enough small flies right. in my box because I don't like tying them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like tying them as much. And I, no. I've told myself, all right, you're tying you're going to tie more size 22 and 24 olives and midges this year than you're going to tie 18s because you see more small right. ones. And I, um, I'm just not smart enough to yeah. <laughs> have those smaller flies in my box. But when you need them, you need them. Yeah, that's so cool. And where do you take, like with this conversation we're having, do you guys have a spot on the Orvis Learning Center that talks goes deep into all this etymology and stuff? Uh, yeah, there's one... Uh, segment called hatches that's on the Orvis Learning Center, fishing hatches. Mm -hmm. And again, I I pretty much use this philosophy that you need to know them to the order level. Mm. You don't need to know all the, uh, the real detailed entomology, but knowing the order and knowing their life cycle is going to help you a lot. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. So this is good. So I think that, um, you know, I mean, obviously there's a, a bunch of different, you know, angles we could take this, but um, I, I do want to, you mentioned actually hatch strategies was another thing I think you're doing at that Virginia festival. Um, uh-huh, I think yeah. that might be, I'm not sure if that's a paid section, but it's, maybe, have we been talking about some of these strategies? What is, what is that? Maybe you can give us a primer on that a little bit. What are hatch strategies? Have we covered some of it here? Yeah, the, the hatch strategy um, philosophy that I use is that people, um, spend too much time worrying about the fly pattern and think that if they have a good imitation of the bug, they're going to be able to catch fish. And they don't think as hard about things like uh, the angle that they're approaching the fish and what the fish's rhythm is and also your leader. I think the most critical part of uh, uh, fishing a hatch is your leader, even more so than the fly. Hmm. Um, well, wow. people don't fish leaders that are, that are long enough. You know, if, if you got a, a slow pool or a 
clear stream and you're fishing a nine foot leader, you're probably going to spook more fish hmm. than then, and you, and all of a sudden the fish stop rising and you say, oh, the hatch must, must have stopped, but it's because you were landing your fly line on top of them. Right. And I've taken a lot of pictures from underwater of a fly line landing, even like a three or four weight and a leader landing, even the butt section of a leader and a fly line produces so much more commotion when it hits the water than, uh, than a leader butt does. And it's not the fact that it's opaque, I don't think, because fish see stuff drifting down, branches and leaves and crap all the time. Um, it's not the clearness of your leader. It's the fact that it's more air resistant. So I urge people to, to use longer leaders, particularly during a hatch, and use longer tippets. Mm. Um, you know, you can extend the butt section of your leader with a piece of 23 thousandths mono, which I always carry. I always carry a... I always carry, along with my two, three, four, five x, six x tippets. I always carry a spool of twenty three thousandths mono. And if I think I'm spooking fish, like if there's a fish rising and I make a couple casts and it stops, hmm. it's probably because I disturbed it. Yeah. And by lengthening, just taking three feet of twenty three thousandths and adding that to my leader with a three turn blood knot, I find that I can, I can get a, a better presentation. Right. Yeah. Right, right. That makes total sense. So, and then you would know that just because, yeah, you cast the fish stop rising. And how do you know how long of a leader to make? And I know that all depends on the, the river, but yeah, is there a, like on that situation, how long would you be going for your leader? As long as you're comfortable with, the longer the better. Right. Um, and you look at your own nymphing. It's all leader. It's all leader, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's no disturbance. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a tw- a, you know, a 14 foot leader is a lot more difficult to cast than a nine footer, but you're going to be better off and just have to increase your line speed a little bit to try to turn over that longer leader. Yeah. Were you guys, um, back to the South Fork, I'm just curious on this one. Were you guys fishing when you're out of the boat? Were you doing like a lot of dry dropper? How were you doing that when you're going down the river? Um, we were fishing mainly from the boat, so we were fishing dry dropper a lot and double dries. You know, particularly for those cutthroats in the South Fork, are so surface oriented. Um, often nymph fishing isn't that isn't that productive for big cutthroats. Yeah, you're better off with a, a I don't know big hopper or a you know mutant stone or October caddis and then a smaller you know size eighteen blue wing olive behind it. Than you are with a dry dropper. Yeah. Um, but that's for cutthroats. That's cutties. Yeah. Because there's rainbows in there too, which is a whole nother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah rainbows and browns. But yeah, double dry is often super effective. Double dry. Perfect. Nice. So that's leaders. And you mentioned leader, fly line, and not spooking. So I guess that's going back just to that sort of, I guess, what would you call that cat? That, that's kind of the hatch matching, right? That's where you're actually, you're trying to get there, but it's not just about the fly. It's about your whole setup and even about how you're approaching them. Yeah. It's about your strategy. You know, you know, and when I see a fish rising somewhere, like on the Henry's Fork, which is very difficult, yep. I'll sit on the bank and I'll see a fish rising. And the first thing that I'll think about is, okay, do I want to approach this fish from straight downstream, across stream, or do I want to try to get way above the fish and do a downstream presentation with a reach cast so that the fish sees my my fly before my leader and tippet? And every fish is different, depends on the current, depends on how close you think you can get to the fish. So, you, you know, every fish is a little bit different and every rising fish during a hatch the first thing you want to decide is, okay, what approach am I going to use to that fish? Right. Before you do anything, like how am I going to get my fly presented correctly? And that might be, is that ever like you make the cast where the fly hits the water uh, and is presented, where maybe the leader doesn't even hit the water? Is that a possibility? Are you ever thinking about that? No, the leader's got to hit the water right after the fly. There's no way to avoid that. (laughs) No, but I think sometimes um, getting above a fish and uh, doing a reach cast so that the fly goes over the fish first uh, on really fussy fish can be a benefit. I know that um, I had a really frustrating day. My last day on the Henry's Fork, I fished with a buddy and we were fishing uh, below the ranch, which is really, really difficult water. And the fish were rising pretty good in the morning. And I was watching the fish and 
I could not get a fly to float over the fish without the fish stopping rising. You know, I, I watched their rhythm and they would stop or they would move even if I got way above them and threw a downstream drift. I mean, this is these are fish that have been fished for all season. The water was low. It was a bright, sunny day. And I said to my buddy, Bob, I said, you know what? It ain't the fly. It's not the fly that's causing us not to catch fish. It's a fact that we can't get a drift over these fish. Yeah. And we couldn't. I mean, we caught a couple small ones, but, um, you know, the bigger fish, we just could not get a drift over them. And maybe if I was a smarter angler, I could have figured it out. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's it. This reminds me of, you know, like steelhead fishing, like on the Deschutes, which I've been in those situations where I know exactly where the fish are. It's it's like a little section of a couple feet within a big run. But the currents are so kind of different over rocks and stuff that I can't get that fly presented correctly. And then sometimes I'm just like, oh, man, I know where the fish are, but I can't do it. I mean, when you get to that situation, you just give it a shot and then eventually, okay, okay, that fish, they kind of want it that day. Is that how it works? Yeah, you know, if they keep rising, I'll I'll work a fish for three hours. Mm. <laughs> if I don't spook it, yeah, I'll keep working it. And probably if I was smart enough on that situation at Harry's Fork, I would have put a really long six X tippet on. Mm, right. But the problem is that a good fish in the Henry's Fork with six X and all the weeds, you're never gonna land it. Yeah. Yeah, you're done. So you you got you kinda try to do the best you can with five X. Yep. And, um, you know, longer tippet is always a good idea. You know, it lands softer. It's more air resistant. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, it's also more drag resistant because oh. it's, it's less mass. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, a, a long, long, long piece of 5X is probably better than a short piece of 6X. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then even 6.5, right? Even the, the trout hunter, I think, right? They have even the, in the points yeah. in betweens. Um, this is good. Well, let's take it out of here real quick with the, uh, this is going to be the Ask Me Anything segment, which I, again, presented by the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. I think you have this segment on, you're, you're doing this at the show, right? There's like an Ask oh, Me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so how is that one? Is that one where you show up and it's like, okay, here we go. Just throw the questions left and right at you. Do you is that how that looks? Yeah. And I think last year it was a women only. Oh, um, maybe it I'm is. Not sure. Okay. I'm not sure if it's this year, but yeah. Yeah. And that was really fun. There were some great questions and, yeah. you know, some of them I couldn't answer. And, you know, people love it when someone like me who has been fishing a long time will say, I don't have a clue. Right. They stump you. you they stump and Tom, I, right? I can't, answer that. I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, and people love that. They, you know, it gives them confidence that even somebody that's been doing this for well over 50 years, um, doesn't have an answer. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, let me, uh, I'll try to think of a couple of quick ones as we get out of here. Um, okay. but, uh, you know, I guess one of them was just getting back to, you know, the gear. Cause I always love the gear. Everybody loves the gear. Orvis. I think, I mean, you guys have like, as far as the, the rod line, maybe look at this last year. What, what is the, you know, if you're getting that rod for, let's just go to brook trout. We were talking about, we got that trip coming up. What is the Orvis brook trout? What is a good rod for those high mountain streams, Shenandoah, that stuff? Well, you know, I like a, a not super short, but relatively short, lightweight rod. Not that it's always the most efficient, but those fish aren't going to be very big. And it's really fun to fish them with a, with a light rod. So I like a seven and a half foot three weight. Mm. And I fish it in the the H3 mm-hmm. premium. I fish it in the Recon. I fish it in the Clearwater, which is a which are lower priced rods. But seven and a half foot three is really nice because you know the, even a little brook trout will put a bend in the rod, mm-hmm. and it's just a light little rod. I don't recommend people go any shorter than that because a lot of times in small streams you you try you're fi- casting only the leader and you're trying to keep your your fly line off the water. Yeah. And so you have to hold your rod a little higher. And a short rod is kind of a disadvantage there. Oh. And honestly, a short rod in brushy streams does not give you that much of an advantage. People think it does. But when you actually get into the water, you realize that, you know, you're still going to get hung up in the yeah. branches, even with a seven footer, six and a half footer. Yeah. What is the shortest rod that you have or that's out there? The shortest rod I have seven and a half feet. I don't go any shorter. Yeah. Are there rods, but there are rods that Orvis makes or others that make that are shorter than seven and a half? 
Uh, boy, you got me there. I think there might be a six and a half or something. Yeah. I haven't heard of one though. Yeah. It seems like seven and a half. Yeah. That range is the. Yeah. There's some, I know there's some seven footers. Yeah. But, some seven footers. Um, you know, I like seven and a half for a three or a four on those small streams. Okay. Perfect. Good. And uh, so my other one here is just on podcasts because I love that, you know, the Orvis podcast comes up a lot because, I mean, how long have you guys been doing that? When did that start? Remind me again. God, I don't know. It's like 12 years, I think. Yeah, it's been 12 years. So it's been longer than most been going out there. Um, you know, you guys just rolling along. Have, have there been in the last few years any changes or do you guys on the program pretty much have been doing the same thing that's been working, you know, like the first you know few years you started? Oh, it, it's evolved. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first few podcasts, it was just me talking and they were pretty lame. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, it gradually evolved into uh, about half of the podcast is where people send in questions and I try to answer them or try to find them an answer. And then the other half is an interview. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've tried, I've gone a lot more to trying to find scientists who uh, are studying these ecosystems that we care about so much, hydrologists, um, and kind of help educate people on the environment a little bit more and threats to the environment. Um, those are super popular. And um, I'm doing more now because um, my job has changed a little bit. I don't have as many responsibilities that involve things like spreadsheets and right. um, analysis and I'm I'm doing more education stuff now. So I do a podcast almost every week. Oh, yeah. As you know, know, it's a lot of work to get to arrange one. And, you know, then I have to uh, read all the questions and try to figure out answers. But I, you know, been doing one almost almost one a week. And so that's different. I used to do them maybe twice a month just because I had other responsibilities. I didn't have time. And I think I'm doing a better job at them now because I spend more time preparing for them. Uh-huh. Yep. And what's your main preparation? How do you, like, you got a guest coming in. Let's say it's a, ma- a great big scientist. How do you prepare for that person? I don't prepare as much as you think in that regard. I, I look at their bio. Yeah. But I don't I don't give them a list of questions. And I, and I ask them to just outline what you might want to say. And I don't want to know too much about the subject, because I find that if I'm really curious, I'm probably going to ask the same questions that my listeners are going to ask. So I always try to get people on the podcast that know more than me about a particular subject, yeah. know a lot more than me, so that I stay engaged and I'm, I'm asking questions that I think people will want to know. So I don't, I don't prepare as much on the subject as I do just getting getting the right guest and, um, you know, and answering the questions in the, what we call the fly box. Yeah. in the fly box. That's perfect. And then out of all the guests you've had on, and I know it's probably like me where you start to not remember all of them, but are there any that you think back, you're like, oh man, I was a little nervous for that episode, that person, because you're Tom Rosenbauer, right? You've, you've had all these people. Do you, does that ever come up to you in the episode? Yeah. Yeah. There were two and they're my two personal favorites just because they're, they're heroes of mine. Um, one was Tom McGuane. Oh, wow. Um, which I was very nervous about because I've been a huge Tom McGuane fan, um, mostly his non-fishing stuff. I mean, he's just a, an incredible, yeah. incredible writer. And that one I was nervous on. And he, of course, he was wonderful and warm and funny and put me at ease um, pretty quickly. And then John McPhee, um, my other literary hero kind of in the nonfiction realm, I had always wanted to have John McPhee on, and of course he was absolutely wonderful as well. So, um, yeah, those are the two that I think I was most uh, most nervous about. There you go. And once you got on, did it feel like once you got rolling, you were good to go, and the nervous, the anxiety kind of went away a little bit? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it did. It did right yeah. away. Yeah, that's the cool thing about doing the podcast is that I've had that happen a lot, and yeah, it's one of those fun things about it because we're all just humans. You know, at the end of the day, whether it's a, a some person like McGuane or a billionaire or whatever it is, that person, it's just like we're all people. And at, well, we at, all share the same passion too. Yeah, and it's fly fishing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's good. 
Nice, Tom. Well, I think um, I think this has been another amazing one. Uh, we will send everybody out, uh, obviously, to Orvis.com. If they have questions for you, a podcast at Orvis.com would be a good place. And I know we have a ton of listeners uh, that listen to your podcast and ours, so I think this is going to be a great episode. Uh, anything else before we get out here? I want to give a shout-out to the um, the Virginia Festival that you know is coming. Any, uh, any words of advice to anybody that are thinking about maybe hitting that festival? Uh, if you have any interest at all in going, do it because it's a really fun event. Um, yeah, I, I just, I really enjoy it and, uh, and bring the family, Yeah, you know, bring your kids. It's very family oriented. They have activities and cut casting for kids. And if you're a woman, you shouldn't feel intimidating. They have a, they have a, you know, women often get intimidated at fly fishing events because it's such a ma- it's yeah. still such a male bastion but uh, women are very welcome and welcoming there and um, yeah it's just great yeah it's perfect all right tom well thanks for your time today and we'll definitely uh, as always be in touch and i appreciate uh, everything you do out there well dave thank you it's, you're a great interviewer and you have a great podcast and it's always always fun to talk to you that is a wrap you can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.